Okay, short review where we, we've been. We've been talking about the kingdom of God, which is God's people in God's place under God's rule with God's blessing. You add those four together, you have an idea of what the kingdom is all about. We took a look at the pattern of the kingdom with the creation and the Garden of Eden. There's meant to be a paradise where things not only good, but when he comes to create human beings, he says, it's very good. It's much mucho good. Uh, actually, the word very means exactly that. It's mucho. It's muchness. Muchness good. Then we took a look at the, the perished kingdom, which I prefer saying the perverted kingdom, and that is sin destroyed. The positive relationship Adam and Eve had with God and the, destroyed the creation in the sense that now sin not only has entered, but it is predominant within it. Therefore, it rains for three days, and the rivers around Dayton flood, and the people who live in the lowland go to the highland. That's because of sin. That's because of the fall. And again, I say it's, a, it's the perverted because the kingdom of God is still standing. You still had Adam and Eve. It just was twisted. It didn't perish. Perish is the idea. It was went away. No, it never went away. But it happened. Then we looked at the promised kingdom, Abraham, with uh, the covenant given to him, the preliminary covenant of, and God, as we will see as we go through the, the book and the, and the whole section, the whole course, is continually added to that covenant. Abraham got the basics. As we're going to see today, God adds a whole new section to that covenant. And his family. And then goes into the partial kingdom from Abraham's extended family. It goes out to how God rules in, in ways not only to bring his family into a place in which they grow, but also in a place from which he can rescue them and they begin their relationship with God, a positive relation. I, I usually try to be careful. We say, well, those without Christ have no relationship with God. Well, they do have relationship. It's either positive or negative. It's either on his side or against him. And that is going to give a certain outcome. What we don't have is fellowship. It's not the garden. It's not walking in the cool of the evening and having God come into our midst. That's the thing that's missing. The whole idea of conversion is you are taken from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, Colossians 1. So you're, you've changed kingdoms because you change fellowship with God. Even in the kingdom of darkness, you are with God. Even, even hell is not the absence of God. People wish it would be. Hell is the, the presence of God in the fullness of who he is. And it's like Isaiah, woe is me for I am done, undone. Because they see who he is, okay? Today we're going to take a uh, second look at the partial kingdom where we took a look at God's people uh, and we're now going to take a look at God's place and God's rule and his blessing and cursing of them. And this is the section in which God organizes, trains, and deals with his people. 
Therefore, thinking about what John said this morning, you can entitle it The Trek. Because every time you're on a pilgrimage, you're on a trek, going from one place to another. All of these books are describing the trek that Israel goes on. So why do you study them? Well, I put down two verses in the outline. Romans 15, 4. Paul writing, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You read these books. You read Leviticus, which is usually where people go, Oh man, what am I doing here? You read Leviticus because it gives you encouragement and hope. You read through some of these and you, you get to uh, some of them, like, well, uh, Judges, Josh, Numbers, that's just filled with all sorts of names and families and all that. Why? I don't need to know that genealogy. I don't even know my own genealogy, let alone that one. But you realize these are real people who God worked with and brought along at the right time to continue his kingdom. And there's lessons in there. Second verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Again, Paul is reiterating, we are living in the last days, ends of ages. It has nothing to do when Christ, and whether Christ is going to come back tomorrow or in five minutes and save you all from this lecture, or whether it's going to be a thousand years. All of that is the last days. So um, we're living them. And the examples from the Old Testament, they're written for our instruction. You see them, and you see something about yourself, and it gives you either something not to do or something to do. That's what they are. So... We're going to take a look at the trek all the way from Leviticus when they're in the wilderness to when they come to the promised land, and that's when they're settled. Here in the wilderness, God is building his, his kingdom. He's building his people. It took 40 years. What he was doing, I think I said this last time, he had taken his people out of Egypt, and now he's taking Egypt out of his people. And that, it takes 40 years to do that, a whole new generation. They come to settling into the land, and that's all the way through First and Second Samuel. Then you get into what I call the period of the exile. That is a curse that takes place, and part of that has to do with the kings and the nature of the kings that they have. Didn't put down First and Second Chronicles. You could add it in there. First um, and Second Chronicles is very similar to First and Second Kings, except it's written from the perspective of Judah and the righteous kingdom. Here in Samuel, Second Samuel, you get to read about David and Bathsheba. You you know the story. It's a pretty illicit affair, and all kills a friend of his a good comrade. You never see it in First and Second Chronicles. They only show the good things about David. This is a modern biography where they forget about the warts and they only give you the good things. 
General Patton was a great man. Well, they forget about the things he did when it was rotten. Finally, the third part of the trek is a renewal, what I would call grace. As we'll see in the curse, the God was right in sending them into exile and basically taking all the people out of the land that had been promised. And they could have stayed there in exile and God would have been perfectly fair. And we'll see why that is true. But graciously, he renews them and he brings them back. And that's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, and we'll take a look at those as we go through. Okay, So that's, that's the order. And I'm going to try to give you one word for each of these books that you can hang your hat on. And remember, that's the way I like to remember things, one word. Got to keep it to one word. Two words I forget. That's why I never remember your last names. <laughs> no, two words. Summary. You have Leviticus. And with Leviticus, the word is worship. Leviticus is fascinating because it tells you how the people of God were called to worship. So you read the first eight chapters of Leviticus and you go through all of the sacrifices. This is what you do in this circumstances. This is a guilt offering. This is, and you have so many rams and so many bulls and you have to do so much with it and do everything with it. And you kind of go, oh man. Why do I have to read this? Well, two reasons. One, this is how you make atonement. This is how you make peace with God. And second of all, they deal with unintentional sins. As you read through, and this hit me when I was reading through Leviticus a few weeks ago. Every one of them deals with unintentional sins. Whoa. What do you do if you have intentional sins? Doesn't tell you. See, that's why David would say later on that the uh, sacrifices of God are a broken heart. Not sins offerings. Because he couldn't deal with his, uh, his intentional sins. But God can deal with them. Little note of grace. I mean, that's why Jesus. Jesus didn't just die for your intentional sins. He died for your unintentional or sins. Wiped them out. It's also like uh, in um, the worship where in 9 and 10 they mention how the Lord accepts Aaron's offering. And when you get to 10, you have the death of Nadab and Abihu. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You imagine? Your two sons, oldest sons, are burnt by God. 
Why? Because they were offering the wrong kind of worship. Strange fire. It's a reminder to us, again, the example and the instruction. Worship God in the way he wants to be worshipped, not the way you think is appropriate. And he gives a whole book and a whole Bible to tell you how to worship. Worship in spirit and truth. Not just outwardly, not just by rote, but by the heart and by what he has said. See, doesn't it become more and more exciting as you think through these things? Then there's a 25, chapter 25. And, and this is going to be crucial for the rest of Israel's history. Beginning of verse 1. Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servants and your sojourner who lives with you and your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All to yield shall be for food. All its yield shall be for food. Every seventh year. Now, modern farmers know this in the sense that neither leave their land fallow to recoup all the nutrients that the plants have taken, or they put in a different uh, plant in order to bring those in. But here, because they basically only had a few few uh, uh, products, he said, seventh year, Sabbath year, keep it holy. Your land doesn't do any work. But it's more than simply following and making the ground ready for the next set of crops. And we'll see this as we go through these books. One of the things that Leviticus shows to us is that animals will not be enough of a sacrifice. There's got to be something more. And you know, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this, that... The blood of animals is not enough. It has to be the blood of the Son, especially the Son of God. So, okay, that's it. Numbers, journey. It's named after some of the times that the people were numbered and they wanted to make sure. They begin the trek to the promised land the tabernacle that has been built to God's precise instructions is always at the center of the people. Whether they're camped, there are three tribes to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west. And they're almost of equal proportion in those. And when, they, when it's time to leave and they pack up the tabernacle, there's six tribes in the front and six tribes in the back. The six tribes in the front are greater than the six tribes in the back because the enemy was no longer Egypt behind them. The enemy that could devour them was in front. 
so you wanted to have most troops there. Not a bad general way of dealing with war. Put the troops where you need them. So you always had the presence of the Lord to guide them, to guard them, and to encourage them on their way. If they were stumbling, they look behind or look forward, and they see the tabernacle was wrapped up, but there would be the presence of God, especially the ark. The ark was that important. Uh, and yet, what happens in this journey? They show that Egypt is still in them. They grumble about the food. Every day God gave to them manna. Once in a while he gave to them meat. And what do they say? Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt. Leeks and onions and all that good stuff. And yet God has graciously provided in the desert more than enough food for them. Uh, they rebel against God. God says, enter the promised land, but... 40 days after they've left Mount Sinai, a significant number, 40 days, 40 years that Moses was in the wilderness, 40 days that they were around Mount Sinai, 40 days continues to be that kind of number throughout Scripture. And they send out spies. Well, hold on, look, if the Lord told you to go up into the country, why do you need spies? He's going to guide you. He'll take you through the passes. He'll get you there. Uh, and they had a committee vote. Horrible thing. <laughs> Committees are horrible things. Ten said, oh, they're giants. The land is beautiful. It's got more than we have, but they're giants. Two of them say, we can do it. God told us we can do it. And because they rebelled, he said, none of you over 20, are going to enter in. It'll be your children. So they then walk for 40 years in circles around a, a dance. They could have been in there within a couple months. But that whole generation has to die off. Again, what's the example? Don't grumble. Uh, Paul, in that uh, passage on 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 10, basically mentions the sins of Israel. They grumbled. They were in idolatry. They were in sexual immorality. And he said, these, these are the things that your, the people did in numbers and in the wilderness. Don't do them. Simply don't do them. That's your example. That's your instruction. Okay, Deuteronomy. Second law. Deutero, word for second. Nami is a word for law. Here you have the second giving of the law. Forty years, new generation. It's time for them who have been taught the law over and over again to have it put down in one place. And so in a series of sermons given by Moses over a period of time, he prepares the people to enter into the land. Uh, he shows the signs and, the, and, and what he does and how he writes it shows the signs of the uh, covenant. I think in my outline I gave to you, did I, I gave you, that's a homework. I gave you the, the seven points of a covenant, right? Moses gives a preamble. 
He talks about the general history of why they are who they are. He gives to them a general stipulations about what they are called to do. Then he gives specific stipulations. And finally, the blessings and curses that come along with the document cause or the reason for the document and the witnesses sign the bottom of it. That's the form of a covenant. What's important for us now is the stipulations, whether they be general or specific. These are the things you are called to do. And right after that come the blessings and curses. For instance, well, yeah. For instance, let's go to Deuteronomy 28. This is one of my, well, no, one of my favorite. But in the book of De Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a uh, exceptional chapter. Starts out in verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed you shall, shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And he goes on for what we have in our Bible, another paragraph of the blessings. And then you get to verse 15. But, and when you know, the, when you hear the word but, what happens? Contrast is coming. Yeah, what's it there for? If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of, the of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall be when you go out. It's a reminder to us that the covenant, whatever covenant God's made, is conditional. It's an if-then. It's not carte, not carte blanche. Make a covenant and that's just the way it is. It always has stipulations and it has blessings and curses that go with us. Now, we could spend the rest of our time just looking at chapter 28. Because if you read through it, which I expect you to do tonight, while you're waiting to see Victoria. No, obviously you don't like PBS. <laughs> Okay, when, while you're reading through chapter 28, you will see the history of Israel in the promised land under the curses. Curse it if you do this and this and this and this will happen. You can almost just take it right through all of here. It's an amazing chapter. And this was given before they ever set foot 
in the land. Partly because God knows what's going to happen, but partly because he's telling them, this is what happens if you don't obey me. That's the example. Well, I don't have to listen to the word of God, right? I can do it my way. Or I do listen to the word of God and he brings these blessings into my life. Covenants are always conditional. I emphasize that because there is a movement in our church of the day which is only about less than 200 years old that basically says blessing the covenants are not conditional and Israel should always have a land. Okay? He, they, you know, God will forget his curses and give. I want to show you two times when that's not true. And we'll see it as we go through this lesson. Uh, I say that because it's predominant. Uh, any of you ever read the Left Behind series? Good, don't. <laughs> you ever seen the Left Behind movies? Even better, don't. They are really bad. Not only acting, but bad theology. Uh, there are a couple other things that, that uh, Moses sets up here in Deuteronomy that helps them to be building the, the, the uh, people as they're ready to settle the land. Deuteronomy 17. Fourteen to twenty. Now, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, and you shall set as king. You shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And you shall not acquire many wives, or he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall come and shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. Notice the parameters. It's okay if you set a king. Because a king was meant to be the vice regent before God. As Adam was the vice regent over creation, the king is meant to be the vice regent of God. He is his representative before the people. Uh, and yet he sets the requirements. Shall uh, He shall not do this and shall not do that. He shall do this. What's the one thing they say he should do? 
copy the law. Copies is specifically Deuteronomy, but it could be the first five books of Pentateuch. And have a copy with them always. Remember, this is the day before printing presses and before internet. So you only had it in a scroll, and very few people had that scroll. But the king was called to read it and follow it again and again and again. He was not supposed to take many wives because they would direct his heart away from God. He was not to have many horses and to be like other kings. He was not to have this great empire, this wealth beyond what the, God, what the Lord God would give to him. Otherwise, his heart would be turned and he would not follow after God. Remember that when we get to First Kings, First and Second Kings. Second passage, 18, just turn the page over. 14 to 19. Lord your God, Moses is saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the words of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, you are right in what you say. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And he will put my words, uh, I, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of, the other, of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not been spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come, to true, come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. King, prophet. Now here he speaks of one prophet, but he's also speaking of prophets that were to come. And what are prophets? Prophets are the keepers and the teachers of the law. Uh, we sometimes look at prophets and say, well, their they're whole purpose was to foretell what was going to take place. Well, that was a very tiny part of what they did. What they were called to do was to foretell, that is, tell the people, what does the word say? And remind them of that word. And that's the second office. The third office comes in chapter 31. And this is, again, God preparing his people to get in and settle the promised land. 31.9 Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when, you, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, 
that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God so long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The priests were the keepers and the teachers. I, we, we look at priests and we think of the sacrifices. Leviticus 1 to 8. And that was part of their job. But the Levites, as part of the priestly tribe, their predominant role is teaching the law to the people. That's why you'll see when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it's Ezra the priest, a Levite, who stands up and teaches the law. That was his job. And he is to do it every seventh year, the year of release, which would be the Sabbath year, at a specific um, fe festival, the Feast of Booze. And they were to read it so the people would remember it. A constant reminder. This is what God wants from you. This is what God has said. Uh, we do a little bit different today. We give you a read through the Bible in a year. And we ask you, read the book over and over and over again so that you remember it. Uh, my wife says, how did you learn the Bible? I said, I read it over and over and over again. When I was in seminary and had a lot of time, I read it every fourth month. I finished it three times in one year. <sighs> what a good boy am I. No. But you, I, I got to know the Bible. Here they didn't have books, so the best they can do is every seventh year when all the people are there, even the little ones, read it to them. Let them explain it. Take the time to know the Word of God. So you have the three offices, prophet, king, and priest. And finally you have the change of leadership. And what has happened in this section, and really in all of this, the theocracy is established. Now we know democracy. We know what it is to have a republic where we elect the people who will serve us, serve us depending on how you look at what happens. Uh, we know a monarchy, one ruler, and we celebrate Queen Elizabeth's 500th anniversary or something like that. She's been around forever. <laughs> Almost. We know an oligarchy where a small group of people oversee. A theocracy is when God is ruling. And God rules through his kings, through his prophets, and through his priests. All of that, again, when you really throw that, what's the common denominator? The law. The king is to read the law. The prophets are to proclaim the law. The priests are to teach the law to their people. So they are well organized under the law. That's the building. And that's only the first part of the trek. Forty years. Then you get to the land where they are settling. And here you have Joshua who is the conquest If you've done any Bible memorization, you probably memorized something from the first chapter. 
that said, do not let this, this book of the law depart, but meditate on it day and night. And that was part of his role as a king and a leader. But the conquest is to take over. And then we, we, we all know the little story of Jericho. March around seven times. Or seven days. And seventh day you do it seven times. And you shout and the walls fall down. And people make fun of that. How could that happen? Well, you got to know our God. If he can part the Red Sea and pull it back, he can certainly get rid of a few brick walls. And certainly he has. And then they move, they, they went through Jericho because it's right in the middle of the promised land. If you have a Bible with a map, you'll see it's right in the middle. And then they go north and then they go south to take every area. But when they do that, they don't eliminate all of the tribes that God told them to eliminate. They said, well, we've taken the whole thing and it has been divided among the 12 tribes. Now, each tribe is to eliminate those in their land. Do you think they did it? You know Israel too well. They didn't. And that caused problem after problem after problem. There's a conquest. And I think that's one of the reasons why at the end of Joshua, he calls them and he warns them. As for me and my house, and that has not just, you know, we, we use that as... Me and my house, my family. Uh, he's really talking about me and my tribe. And in a sense, he's also thinking, me and my people. We shall follow the Lord. If he commands me to get rid of these people, I must do it. Blessing comes if they do it. The cursing comes if they disobey. Remember? Covenant, stipulations, blessing curses. And you will see throughout the book that the curses come because they didn't do what God had told them to do. But they're finally into the promised land. In the Judges, you have 300 years. Now, when you hear the word judge, what do you think about gavel, okay? Some person in a black robe. Lawyers. Yeah, lawyers. Okay. Or if you're of my generation, here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. <laughs> Ordering the court now. Here comes the judge. <laughs> or if you've seen reruns of Laugh-In. <laughs> okay. Well, judges are not, quote, judges. Judges are leaders. These are people who are brought up, anointed by God to be saviors, basically in their tribe or their area. They are not national figures in that same sense. They are not like David and Saul and Solomon. They only work within their tribes. But there is this, this uh, cycle that keeps moving through judges and why they needed those kind of people. If you look at the second chapter of Judges, verse 11 to 23, it talks about how Joshua has died 
They failed to complete the conquest. Israel disobeys. Uh, because they disobey, God says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And then it happens, verse 11, And the people of Israel did, was e did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who they had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm and as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. You hear Deuteronomy 28? Cursed shall you be. And it's, it's in there. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all to the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I command their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. In your notes, there is this cycle. There's rebellion by the people of God. They fall away from the covenant and they mimic the other people who are within their country. There's retribution by the Lord. He sends diseases or he sends people to plunder them. You know, you, you remember the story of Gideon? Where did the Lord find him? Yeah, he's in a wine press because, because he could hide from his enemies and he could uh, thresh his grain in a wine press because no one would see it and no one would steal from him. And, and, and very much cowardly. Then there's a period of repentance. Oh Lord, help we your people with whom you gave the covenant. We are languishing here. And you can almost hear the, the cry of pity and the Lord listens to that because he's a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he raises up a leader who in a variety of ways frees them in their particular area from their plunderer. And then what happens? Relapse. And the sense is, 
it doesn't take too much after the leader is dead or gone when they've relapsed. And it, what hit me when I read it today, they relapsed further than when they first came. You ever see this, this kind of cycle in people? They rebel against God. There is a retribution by God against them. And all of a sudden they cry out, you know, it's a foxhole religion. Lord, get me out of here. And they, the Lord raises up a way in which they're rescued. But when they are rescued, they go back and do the same thing, but even do it more predominantly than before. See, again, these are written for your instructions as examples for you. This is why you read these historical books. They show you how not to live. And the end of the book ends with the, the commentary. There, there was no king in the country and everyone did as he pleases or pleased. Autonomy. Everyone did their own way. They had forgotten all of this. 300 years this goes on. You know, you think that somewhere in those 300 years, somebody would have woke up and said, hold it. We're not getting anywhere. We're in the land, but we don't have it. Well, it doesn't work that way. You do have a little book called Ruth. It's a story within the period of the judges. It's not too sure exactly when. Uh, it's a story that sets up the messianic line. But it's a story that also says that somebody from outside Abraham's seed becomes a believer. And out of that Gentile comes a Messiah. See? Already God is setting up the New Testament. Already he's setting up Matthew by saying, look, you are special people, but I can bring people in from anywhere and make them part of my kingdom. And this is, what he, this is what he does. 1 Samuel. The word is king. You have a great leader, the last of the leaders, last of the judges, 1 Samuel, whose sons rebel. And so the people come up to Samuel and he's, they say exactly what Rose, what what Moses had written in Deuteronomy 17, give us a king. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let us become exactly like the people who surround us. And you've got to ask the question, why? You look at their lifestyles and say, why? Well, we've lived under this theocracy where God raises up his rulers. And we don't like that way. We want some central government that will oversee us and help us. And the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. Well, partly because his dynasty was going away. 
but I think partly because the attitude in which they came. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Didn't take long, 300 years. A little bit longer than 300. And they're rejecting the three, theocracy. And they're throwing it aside. Uh, yeah, go ahead. They're, they're the two same phrases in the Deuteronomy and the First Samuel passage. This is where written word fails us. It's the tone of the voice. The tone of the voice tells you everything. In Deuteronomy, it's God saying, if they want a king, I'll give them a king. In First Samuel, they said, we want a king. Well, come on and they're basically saying, Lord, we don't care who you are. We want our king. We want to be like all the other nations. And that's, that's the difference. Again, that's partly reading into it, but it's, you can say that, that helps deal with any, what, what some people would say is a contradiction. It's a reasonable explanation. At least I thought it was reasonable when I came up to it. Now, whether or not it was reasonable, <laughs> you all get to judge on that. Okay? So they have two kings. First king is Saul, and he's a disappointment. Why? Because he does things his own way. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit, but he denies the law of God and the will of God. The anointing is taken off him. And the anointing is then given to David a young shepherd boy. And he rises to grow into maturity toward being what was considered one of the great kings of Israel. So that's 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel basically deals with David. In battle, Saul is killed. And notice how David never takes the life of Saul Although Saul is acting in rebellion before God and David has been anointed as the next king. Everyone could have said, well, David, you had every right. Get rid of that rotten king, Saul, and take your anointing and do what you're called to do. He says, I cannot touch the anointed of the law of the Lord. And he waits. Great study on patience. And he waits until God opens up the possibility. And he does it through a battle. He takes over. And in doing that, the land, the people of the land come around him. Uh, his own tribe in, at first and then seven years later, all of the tribes come and make him king. And he begins to solidify the people, conquer gives stability to the government and to the place and finally set up a place in which the ark can be and that's in Jerusalem, uh, then called the city of David, his city. Again, you'll hear that in the New Testament uh, and that comes. And then you have this idea. David somehow comes up with this great idea. Let's build a house for God. 
He's been sitting in this temple or tabernacle. And we get to move it around, and it moved around. That's not good enough. Let's build a house for God. Let's put him in one place. And I, you know, I, I kind of sit there and think, God's up in his heaven going, did I ask you to do that? <laughs> Was, did you read my mind? <laughs> no. But David comes up with this great idea, and he's asked Nathan, his, his uh, prophet, and the prophet, of course, says, hey, that sounds really good. That'd be a great, we'd bring all the people to Jerusalem. There'd be a central government. It'd be wonderful. And then David, then Nathan goes out and God says to Nathan, David's not going to build that house. But I will give him a son who builds the house. And David hears that and he rejoices and he prays in gratitude to God for what God was going to do. And it's the progression of the covenant. Started by Abraham. Your seed will be great and nations will be blessed by it. It has moved through his family. It was given in the covenant that happened out in the wilderness with the uh, Ten Commandments, the instructions from God, the law that he gave to them. He pulled them together as 12 tribes and he, he lived in the middle of them. And finally, he adds another layer of it that I will build a better house for David than what David could ever build for me. It will be his son. Now note, when you read 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 29, especially verse 4 to 17, he does not say to his sons. Just as God did not say to Abraham, to your sons, he said to your seed, singular, one. Here is where people sometimes get off. Some of the translation says to your offspring, offspring of children. I think it's, that's the way the NIV does it. And all of a sudden you think, well, all of the children then are going to be blessed. No. He said to a seed, to one. Paul picks this up and he says to the Galatians, there's one seed. He is a Christ. That's the seed of Abraham. And all who are in Christ are part of that seed. Galatians, I think it's Galatians 4, 3 or 4. Lord says the same thing to David, your son. Now, David has a few sons. Through his own wickedness, though, he has one special son. From Bathsheba, he's given the son called Solomon. And David seems to think, this is the one about whom the Lord spoke. My son. You know, if you're one of several boys in a family and your father looks at you and says, my son. How big do you feel right about then? About that size. But he said, this is the one that's going to build. So David spends the rest of his uh, kingship preparing all that is going to be needed for the temple so that his son, Solomon, can build the temple. All the time, maybe not real realizing what we know because we are on the other side of history. 
that what David really ought to be building is the one son, his Messiah. And God doesn't need a tabernacle. In fact, some of the prophets will even say, uh, have God say through them, I don't need a building. I'm in your midst. I think it's Isaiah 65, 66, somewhere in there. I mean, it's late in the afternoon. I've already spoken once. About 2 o'clock, my mind goes like this anyway. So I, I don't remember the address of that verse, but that's what it is. He is getting together all the materials. There is one action of, of David that really kind of puts a crimp in his kingship. And that is being, first of all, not going out with his army. Because a king ought to be with his army when they're in battle. Even if he stays in the background like a four-star general and says, make sure this happens. And he looks and he sees a very delightful young lady. They have a baby. He kills the lady's husband, even though he is one of his strong men one of the inner circle of people who support him. And he is found out, and Nathan says, you're the man. And that's where you get Psalm 51 and Psalm uh, 32, even Psalm 139. But all of a sudden, there's a crack in his family. You know, you don't keep these things hidden. At least in your family, they know what went on. And they know why things happen. And all of a sudden, they're saying, how can I trust Dad? How can I really trust him? And the crack begins. Even his own sons begin to rebel against him. There has to be that the nation itself begins to hear of these rumors that are coming out of the Jerusalem White House that something's rotten in Denmark to use two different <laughs> simile metaphors. But all of a sudden, David did what? And there's this fermenting that takes place, fermenting within the nation. Solomon comes around and that's where you hit First Kings, and here you have division. Solomon comes. Um, he ascends the throne. He builds the temple. And it is one of the seven wonders of the world. They pray, and when they pray at the end of the building of the temple, down comes God upon that temple to show that's where he is present. Very much like the tabernacle, although it's one place, place. All the people are called to come there three times a year to worship and to be there. And yet at the same time, Solomon forgets Deuteronomy 17. He gets a multitude of horses and chariots. He builds his wealth until he is absolutely... I mean, Bill Gates would be uh, jealous of him. He has a multitude of wives. I think if, if I get 700 wives, 300 concubines. I don't know about you. I have no way in which you deal with 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
But that's his family. Imagine the number of children that came out of that. He sets himself up in a way against Deuteronomy 17, and that leads to a division in his own family. In fact, one of his sons he has to send out because it's so bad. So when he dies, having shown that lack of discernment, the land begins to split. His son, who he rightfully hands the throne over to, is asked by the people, could you make things a little bit easier? I mean, Solomon, in order to keep this kingdom, which was a huge kingdom, a major empire of his day, in order to keep it given, he had to tax them until they, they were poor. Things haven't changed that much, have it? <laughs> he taxes them, and, and they come up to him and say, can you give us a little relief? Can you just help us? And the king, the new king, goes back to his elders, and he says, what should I do? He says, listen to him. Give him some support, you know, take away some of the taxes. And he goes, well, let me try somebody else. You know, if you don't like one person's advice, you go to another. So he goes to his young comrades. What do we do? My little finger is bigger than my father's thigh. You think it was bad under my dad? You just wait until I get done with you. Okay? That's why you always listen to your elders. Okay? <laughs> Now, there, there's a wisdom that comes out of having lived so long. And the country splits. The division. Ten tribes, northern tribes, become a country. It's called Israel, which is too bad that they gave that name. Because then when you get into First and Second Kings and, and Chronicles, or First and Second Kings, you have to think, Israel, Israel. No, 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 that's not the whole people. That's these ten tribes. And the second was two tribes. One was the tribe of Judah and the other tribe, Benjamin. Of, uh, yeah, Benjamin. They become Judah, north and south. And the division is kept pure by Israel developing its own gods and its own place of worship so that the people from Israel would not go down to Judah. And they basically set up their own country. And this goes along... Two tribes. What's interesting as you read through this, they both had 20 kings. Judah had one line of kings, the line of David. Israel had at least four different lines of kings. All of the ones in Israel when God gives his qualification about what they're like, they are bad. And some of them are mucho bad. That word comes back from, uh, from, first Corinthians, from Genesis 1. They are very bad. Much badness is in them. Not a good one in a whole lot. When you get to Judah, they are both good and bad. 
Some of them are not as bad as others. Some of them are very good. Some of them bring revival into the country. Others move the country down. But each king has its effect. There is a, a story within there that talks about how King Hezekiah, who was a bad king but became a good king, was sick. He's on his deathbed. Calls a prophet and he repents of what he had done. And the prophet said, you will have 15 more years of being king. And you can just see him go, yes, wonderful, 15 more years. Well, within that 15 years, he has a son called Manasseh. And Manasseh comes and becomes one of the worst kings. You know, if Hezekiah had known then what he, we know now, he would have said, no, take me, please. Don't let Manasseh be born, okay? Because it just continued the downward spiral. And that's what happened over and over again. There were times they went down. It's like the book of Judges. They went down. God was gracious and brought them back up. But always they're spiraling down. And they get to the end where Israel falls in 742 B.C., taken by Assyria, the world empire at that time. There's 722, excuse me. Can't read my own typing. 722, taken and turned into exile, spread throughout the known world. Because that's what kings did back then. You conquer a land, you take out the people, and you take them to far-reaching areas because then they can't unite and rebel against you. And you put new people in the land in which those people lived. People who are especially responsive to you. Judah goes on until 586. And then they're conquered by Babylon. And again, the same thing takes place. And you wonder... And, and they're prophesied, like Jeremiah did and some of the others, that you will be, in Judah's case, you will be 70 years in captivity. And you wonder, where in the world did the Lord pull that one out? Did you just kind of grab a number? Oh, 70 sounds good. Let's, let's do that. No. Again, there is a reason. If you look at Second Chronicles 36, Verse 21. Well, let's start 20 because that's the start of the sentence. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the, de all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 70 years was because they hadn't celebrated the Sabbath 70 times. And God is simply saying what he told Moses to write. Every seventh year, have a Sabbath. That's the stipulation. You don't have a Sabbath in the land, the curse comes, you are going to be 70 years away during the exile. 
See how God is faithful to his promises? Even when it's hurtful to us, he does exactly what. Imagine you're a man about 70 years old and you're taken into captivity. First of all, you've got to trek the, some hundred, the hundreds of miles between Jerusalem and Babylon. And all of a sudden you hear, 70 years. I'm going to be 140 by the time this takes place. I don't think I'm going to make it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to make it. I am stuck in this country. Or if you're five years old and you go, I'm going to be 75. I'm going to be an old man like my grandfather. (laughs) I may never see this country again. And yet they had always pinned everything that they had on being in this country with the temple, with the king, the priest, and the prophet. All wiped out. Why? God kept his covenant. Cursed are you if you do not obey me. And then you read through Deuteronomy 28. And you see at the end of that chapter, he told them exactly what was going to happen to them. Now you would think the king who was always supposed to be reading the law. And you think that the priests who were always teaching the law would have read the end of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy and go, where are we? Why are we doing what we're doing? But you see this massive disobedience and massive apathy about the word of God. Has it changed? Churches in disobedience? Church in a capital C, which I mean the whole church is, denominations are in great, disobedience congregations are that way they don't know the law of God they don't know the word of God and they wonder why bad things happen to good people okay hey it's there that's a lesson that you learn from what takes place and even from there in renewal the grace Ezra is a book of people who return in order to build the temple. That's specifically why they're going there. And there are a couple prophets who are with them and talking to them. Nehemiah hears about the desolation of Jerusalem and its walls are falling down and he gets permission to come and set up the city so it's secure. And then you have Esther, which is a story of a young woman in the midst of of, uh, this time where she rescues the Jews who ought to have been slaughtered because Haman, who was from one of the original tribes the people of God were meant to destroy. Haman hates the Jews. You see the problem of sin if you don't deal with it right at the beginning? It'll come back and bite you sometime later. Again, the example, the the illustration of what takes place. And there you have the history of what takes place. Now, within this period, you have the wisdom literature, which we don't cover in this course, only because it's not in the book. I'm going to add a chapter into this book sometime. 
uh, publishing company won't let me. But you talk about the wisdom literature. Psalms, predominantly written by David, but written throughout from David on by the priests, the worship leaders. Uh, they write the hymn book and the prayer book of the Bible. You want to know how to increase your prayer life? Use the Psalms every day. Work with them. You have Solomon who wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon was, was not allowed to be read by any young man until he got married. It should be banned in Boston. It is a really graphic book. And yet it makes some great material for weddings. So, And Ecclesiastes, where it says there's nothing new under the sun. All things are vanity, nothing new. And Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, how, you know, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's a reverence, the awe of who he is. And this is how then you shall live in that way. The downfall came because they disobeyed the covenant and denied the theocracy. Um, yet, in all of this, God is doing his work. Even this, why do they come back and build a temple when they're still under Babylonian or Persian rule? Well, God needs a temple for him to come into someday. And what temple does he come, and how does he come into the temple? He doesn't come like when uh, Solomon built the king, when Solomon built the temple and comes like a cloud. He simply enters as a God-man, Jesus Christ. You will not see from, uh, from the division on God entering, or I should say from Ezra on, you never see the glory of God coming on that building. It's not there until the glory of God walks into that building and his own people do not recognize him. But the building has to be there. The temple has to be going on. The sacrifices have to be there in order for him to be able to do his ministry. All this time, all this time of grace, they are under task, task lords. Persia, Greece, Rome. This is why one of the saddest phrases in the trial of Jesus takes place. 19th chapter of John. Um... If I can find it. Pilate is all set to release him. And he comes back to the people, especially these, they're not the people, they're religious rulers. And he says, excuse me, verse 13, 15. And he says, I don't find anything wrong with him. I'll release him. And they say, no. No. Take him away. Crucify him. Yeah, thank you. And in verse uh, 15, 14, 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the people that should know best, answer, we have no king but Caesar. Now, most of the time, we just kind of run past that. 
You know what they're doing? They're back denying the theocracy. We are our own people. We don't, God is not ruling over us. We have no king but a human king. And then you wonder why. In 768 to 70 AD, the Roman army comes, surrounds Jerusalem, starves the city, and eventually breaches a wall, tears down not only the wall that had been built by Nehemiah and the temple that had been started by Ezra, and disperses the Jews all over the world. That was the ultimate of their denial of the kingdom of God. We have no king but Caesar. And what's God's response? The same thing he did down here. You deny me? You, my stipula- you have denied my stipulations? I bring upon you my curse. You are no longer my people. You are no longer special. I will disperse you into the lands. Uh, he, he did it before with the exile. He did it with the temple being destroyed. I mean, that to me is one of the saddest parts. It was be like John or Greg or anyone in the leadership getting up here and say, we don't need Jesus. We're on our own. And right there you kind of hear this swish whoo, as the spirit leaves. You have lost the very, uh, the very power, the very presence of God in your midst. That's why it's especially important that the people of God know the covenant and follow it. Because those blessings and curses have not been taken away. They are part of the full covenant. And that's what's important. So, there is basically that story. At the same time, as you see all this, and you even go into the ministry of Jesus, God is building his kingdom. You know, one of the, one of the most amazing things, God takes his enemies and uses them for his good. This morning I was talking about heretics. Usually we talk about heretics, oh no, bad, bad. But it was the heretics that helped the church define who they were and what they believed. And so you hear heretics, you go, good, good. Why? Because God used them for good. God uses evil to accomplish his purpose. God doesn't just use his own people. Uh, That's one of the examples and the instructions you get from this whole lengthy thousand-year history, over a thousand years of the people of God. That's what he's doing. He's doing it in your life. You wonder why you have some really troubled people in your life? God's using it to make you good. Oh, come on, Lord. Can't you do something else? Please. How about just zapping me? (laughs) No. He teaches you how to live. That's it. Well, we got a couple minutes left, and I got about five minutes left with my voice.
So, questions, comments? Well, I'm sorry, was that? Uh, yeah, there's a, well, probably came from Manasseh. Now, Manasseh at the end of his life turned out to be good. But he really, it was like too little, too late. He had done so much damage that it could not be overcome. And so he could bring that, that prayer. It's, it's one of the great conversion stories of the Old Testament. Hidden away in a book you don't read. Because it's not as exciting. <laughs> oh, it's tremendously exciting. What else? Who else? Um, well, up until then, it was the tabernacle. So, and, but that was designed by God specifically. He even told them, how do you put the rings in the things to stick it on the poles? And he told them everything. Uh, I think a couple of reasons. One, David built his own house. Beautiful, gorgeous house. And the question, he says, how can I live in this house of cedar and gold and God lives out in a tent? Okay? I mean, in that way, I think it was... He was thinking about the glory of God to one degree. Um, well, we know from scriptures that God doesn't, you know, dwell in the temple like Yeah, that's the Isaiah passage. Yeah, I think I think he was trying to do a good thing without God's approval. Did anybody ever do that? The rest of you lie too. <laughs> we try to do good things without the approval of God. Man, if I did this, wouldn't God be pleased? And he looks and says, no, I'm God, I'm not pleased. You know, and I, I think that's the base, the, the base reason. He also, he was denied uh, building the temple because he was a warrior. I mean, he was a king of a great army, and he fought many battles. He shed a lot of blood, not only by himself, but through his army. And God didn't want his temple to be associated with David's blood. Okay, he was waiting, he wanted to wait for a son uh, who would want to build a stone structure who was glorious in his beginning. But further on, he would wait for a son of David who would build him a much better temple. Yeah. Good. Sydney. Well, I think if you read First Samuel, uh, it's an eight. Uh, God says it's because you're a warrior king. Uriah happens four chapters later. So it's down the line. David hadn't done anything up until then. See, again, the timeline is there. Uh, yes, Deanna. Ezra builds a temple with Haggai and Zechariah uh, helping, prophets. People look at it and they say, we remember the original. This is nothing. 
I mean, this is like going from a mansion to a two-bedroom house. That's about what it's like. When Herod comes in order to please the Jews, because he was a people pleaser, he extended the temple until it became one of the great wonders of the world. So he took the original, but added on. So you say the third temple, yeah, that's like I just bought a new used car. I'm the, I'm the second driver, but it's new to me. Okay? So that's, that's what it's like. And, it's, um, and it was, it's gorgeous. It's, it was absolutely, people would come for miles and, and uh, long distances to see his temple. In fact, it was white, so when the sun shone on it with a gold top and you crested the Mount of Olives and you looked at that temple, it was like looking at the Grand Canyon. It was so astounding. It took your breath away. Although Jesus looked at it one day and he wept because he saw it destroyed. Okay. What else? Oh, see... It's dangerous when you sit to my side. I can't see you. My peripheral vision only goes this far, you know? Anyway, so on our Thursday Bible study that priests, we also added judges. Now, remember, judges were leaders, semi-kings. Let me put it that way. They, the king, the, the idea of a king for all the country had not been developed yet. And they only dealt with certain tribes, maybe one or two tribes. So you can't call them the rulers of all the people. Actually, to me, the judges is a misnomer. It's really saviors. But you don't want to have a book called Joshua Saviors. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to have it that way. They, they were leaders, but they were not in the same level. And they hadn't been given by Moses in Deuteronomy. And I showed you where it's kings, prophets, uh, and priests. They all had functions. Okay. Yep. They, uh, yeah, they were useful for the people to realize, yeah, we need someone who's going to rally us and make us his people. Now, I see, here's the difference. I bought a paper copy of the ESV Study Bible. So I don't have to go back and forth. It's on my page. <laughs> see, I, I'm, I'm, I have some tradition in me. Yeah, Tony. Well, Deborah was a judge. She acted like a judge. It was really strange for that time because even queens did not have the same power and rulership as the men. But God raised her up and used her. And you know why? The man wouldn't do his duty. Jabez? Is that the guy? I, I'm trying to remember. He said, well, I'll go if you go. Oh, thanks. <laughs> said, no, you should go. But God then raised up uh, Deborah to do it. It's like, 
I know a denomination that only ordains men, unless you go out, in the womb, out into the mission field. And then it's okay for women to preach and teach and rule until you get enough men to do it. And I, and I, and I go, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> there, is, there is this categorical statement, only men can do that. But you allow it there? I'll let you wrestle with that. <laughs> yeah. And my, my, my friends from that denomination have no answer. So I go, no. <laughs> what else? Okay. Now, this is humbling time. I forgot your homework. I did not bring the homework that you handed to me last time. I will take my shirt off and you can give me 30 lashes for that. Yeah. I was going to tell you that the dog ate my homework, but teachers aren't allowed to use that one. <laughs> the dog ate your homework. You got to do it all over again. No, no. Uh, but I will have it for you next time. Uh, next time we're going to take a look at the prophetic kingdom. We're going to take a look at the prophets. And on your homework, I tried to pick a pertinent chapter from each of the prophets so you get some kind of flavor. Uh, it's only three weeks, three weeks down the road. You have Isaiah through Malachi. I forget how many chapters, but if you do the math and split it up in chapters, you can read all of them. By the time we gather, you will not have eaten, you will not have done your homework, you will have not worked anywhere, but you can read. But this will give you an idea, and we'll take a look at those who are called to proclaim the word of the Lord. Okay? So, if you have your homework, after we pray, you can give it to me, and I won't give you anything back. It's more blessed to give than to receive, I want you to know that. <laughs> But uh, we'll work that way, okay? Excuse me? I don't do hugs. <laughs> How about a five? <laughs> Give me five. No. Yeah, I know, you guys aren't used to that. I'm Presbyterian. I'm slowly warming up, okay? I'm going from frozen to getting closer. <laughs> you got you to take people where they are, not where you want them to be, okay? So, no, I'll take a hug. Side hug. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the illustrations, the examples you give to us from what we call the Old Testament, but really is the history of of your people. Help us to remember what comes from you. Help us as we learn to look at the lessons that have gone of those who have gone before us, the, the witnesses that we have. Help us, O oh Lord, to remember that you are a God of a covenant that has blessings and curses, and we love the blessings, but there are also stipulations by which they come. And help us to live in such a way underneath your grace 
that we fulfill those stipulations to your honor and to your glory. For we ask it in the name of your Son, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.